Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy. And I am Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, part one of Darlie Routier. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brandy. How are you, babe? I'm doing excellent. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. We just finished um, a day at Brownwood, which was excellent. It was. Great time. Great time, as always. Always a great time. Uh, guess what, Chris? We have a new Patreon member. I know. <laughs> Heather Dunn. Good evening, Heather. Thank, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, Heather, for supporting the show. Um, Chris, I did get to chat with Heather a little bit, and she just recently found us, and she's told me she's already binged every episode. Wow, well, great. I know, so she had to join Patreon because she just couldn't get enough. Well, that's cool. Thank <laughs> you so much. Yeah, that's really cool. That makes our hearts really, really happy. Um the wine, this delicious wine for the week, comes from our friends at Cascabel Ranch Winery. We are sipping on a Copperhead Red. Yes, very delicious wine. It <sighs> is a super Texan. It's their take on a super Texan. Super Tuscan. Sorry. Yes. Uh, you'll hear all about that during the wine recess. But babe, if you're ready, I am ready to jump into this case. Yes, let's do that. We've got a lot to talk about. We do. All right, friends. So grab that wine and let's talk some crime. So the city the crime takes place in is in Rowlett. Rowlett. That's right, right? That is correct. Rowlett. That was like the country coming out to me. Rowlett, Texas. So let's learn a few things about Rowlett, shall we? Number one, the main industry in Rowlett was cotton. Today, two cotton gins still stand, but they serve other uses. Yeah, there's not much, not much land left in Rowlett these days. It used to be a little more, a little more country. Yeah. Kind of like Rockwall. I was really digging some, for some interesting facts, but these are the... Well, I have an interesting fact oh. you don't have on your list here. Um, Tell me. That you can take Forest Lane all the way to Rowlett. Okay, I did not know that. All the way through Garland, and it eventually spits you out in Rowlett, yes. I think it turns into 60, Highway 67 or something like that. Okay, well, we should go and see the Routier home. Because they lived in Rowlett. Okay. And let's take take Forest Lane Lane. all the way down. Can we stop at our favorite restaurant at Forest and Walnut? Is that still on the way, right? Yes. Awesome. All right. We'll stop there. Number two, Rowlett, Texas. That was number two. We're on number three. I'm sorry. Now we're going to have four today. Yeah. Rowlett, Texas is in Dallas County, which resides about 15 miles northeast of Dallas. So it'll take us, what, 15 miles to get there? Right? A little longer. 20? Lights. It's <laughs> Lights. forest. It's not the highway. That's true. All right. Number three or number four. The first post office was open on April 5th, 1880 and was named Morris for Postmaster Austin Morris. Wow. You uh, you did find some interesting facts about <laughs> Rowlett. The first post office. I mean, come on. And it's 15 miles northeast of Dallas. That's, that's what I said. That's digging. You dug. You dug for that. I was I'm, I was trying to dig. You Google map that apparently. <laughs> I was trying to dig, and I have a very I have a good friend who lives in Rowlett too. Yeah, there's That's, not. There's is that not, number five? I mean, <laughs> Rowlett's a great town. It's just you know it's small. There's That's no small. lot. Yeah. All right. On June 6, nineteen ninety six, a nine one one call comes in from Darley Routier. Here is that call. <laughs> I don't want medical 
Devin Routier, who was six, and Damon, five, were murdered as they slept on the living room floor of the family's home in Rowlett, Texas. Devin was stabbed twice in the chest with such force that the knife almost went all the way through his body. Damon was stabbed a half a dozen times in the back. Darlie, who was sleeping downstairs on the couch, had two slice wounds in her right forearm, one in her left shoulder, and her throat had been cut. Doctor said she survived only because the knife stopped two millimeters short of her corroded artery. What happened at 5801 Eagle Drive? Well, that was an intense 911 call. Well, I'm looking, I was looking at your eyes because you're playing it on your end of the table over here. And I have seen the words that are shown on the 911 because it is kind of hard to hear exactly what. No, I was reading it too. They're saying, I know you were reading it and I could see your eyes changing. So I'm curious 
to hear what you think when, when we get to discussing um, that call. Okay, Chris, we have two young children murdered as they are sleeping on the living room floor and their mother is asleep nearby on the couch. So um, this is sort of a family room is what they call it. I do have a map of the house that I will post so you can see exactly where um, the boys are found and where Darlie um, was sleeping. So she's not just nearby, Chris. She's literally within feet of where the boys are sleeping. Mm-hmm. We have a, We have an eight-year-old child, right? We've slept on the couch. She slept on the floor. We know how close we are, okay? They're all watching TV, watching a movie the night before. Uh, Darlie had said she had started sleeping on the couch a while back. So um, she was a new mom for the third time and she was sleeping on the couch more. And she said that her boys, this is what she ends up telling police, that her boys asked if they could sleep on the floor and and watch a movie. And she says yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So. Um, we're going to put out, we're putting out part one and part two this week, but there is just so much in this case. I don't think we're going to go a part three. It might go there, but for today, I, I want to discuss the nine one one call. I want to talk about the crime scene and I want to talk about the dynamics and the routier family at the time of this crime. Um, so this was a national case, whether you lived in Texas or not, you have heard of Darlie Routier. Chris, the court held her responsible for these murders, and she was sentenced to death. Let's just get that out now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know that. She's sitting on death row in Texas. She ha- she was only tried for one of her son's murders, and we're going to talk about this in part two. Um, but she ended up only um, being charged with murder with one of her sons, um, the younger one, because by going after murder with the younger because based on the age they could implement the death penalty which is what which which is what they wanted to go for in this case um okay so is it that open and shut there are some people think yes she did it but some people think this is an innocent woman that is sitting behind bars for a crime she did not commit um I wanted to kind of take my own dive into this case, you know, for us to talk about the facts as we know them um, and come up with our own clu- conclusions at the end of this about, you know, what happened that night. So this is June 6, 1996. Darlene Routier and Darren Routier are a married couple with two young boys and a third son who was just a baby at the time of the crime. Um, so people call, so Darlene is her is her official name, but people call her Darlie. So that's what I'm going to call her on this episode. So um, so they met back in Lubbock, and Darlie was only 15 years old when she meets Darren. It's pretty young. Very young. Pretty young to make them your forever, right? Yeah. So they end up meeting because her mother works at the same restaurant that Darren works at. So there, Darlie's family is actually from, I do believe, Pennsylvania. They're from up north. Mm-hmm. So they moved to Texas when um, I do. her mother meets Darlie's stepfather. We'll talk about the stepfather in part two because he will come up in something that was found out after um, the, the trial and conviction. So, um, so they meet. And um, they end up getting married four years later. So she's 19 years old when, when she marries Darren Routier. Uh, Darlie was t- only 26 years old in 1996. So when the murders occurred, she had just given birth seven months before this to her youngest son, Drake. Okay? okay. So she's a mom of three, 26 years old. Drake was asleep with Darren upstairs during the murders and was unharmed. Okay? Yeah, I kind of forgot that he was home when this happened. Yeah, and some people do. Some people think that he w- the the dad was upstairs, but they, you know, and this will come into play because we're going to talk in just a minute about what we t- kind of talked about in the Andrea Yates case a little bit, a little bit of the baby blues, right? We've got a 26-year-old who meets her husband at 15, and, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman that I feel like I can relate with some of these feelings that I hear like researching these cases, but, but we've been there, 
right? We've all wrote in diaries. What, is, what does the stay-at-home dad get? What do you mean? What does he get? I mean, do they get the baby blues? I'm not. Too? No, no. When you have babies, honey, not when you stay home with them. <laughs> that can create some baby blues, I guess. I'm talking about. The, I mean, come on, honey. You are in the medical profession. You know what I'm talking about. Your hormones are crazy when you're pregnant, and then you deliver this baby, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're crazy when they're not, and all of a sudden, our bodies don't have that. I'm anymore. well aware. I'm just. It's. Uh... Just it's just been accommodation the, like Impala it's, it's tonight been or what? A common theme amongst the past. I know. Why did we do this right after Andrea Yates? I know. I think that's what's wrong with me. Okay. Well, I think it was on a couple other ones too, but okay. Else. So Drake's asleep upstairs with Darren. So Darley at the time was a stay-at-home mom. Darren owned a small company, and so this company tested electronic components. I thought maybe you would have a better idea of what that business looked like. I do not. This is 1990s. So do you have a guess at what this could possibly be that he starts making like half million dollars a year, a million dollars a year in this company? I have no idea. But um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we should be in the uh, electronic testing. No, it started to fail. So not I don't think I don't think there's a place for that right now. Okay, so the business starts to make money and this is how he supports the family. So friends and family of the routiers, um, and even the routiers themselves will say that they had this insatiable appetite for the good life. Okay. Um they were making money because not everyone, Chris, can have ten thousand dollar drapes in their living room. That's the good life. That's the good life. Yeah. $10,000 drapes. They put marble all inside of this Rowlett home. By the way, I do believe they purchased this Rowlett home for $125,000 back in, I do believe, 1990, early 90s. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, $123,000, dollars $20, home, putting $10,000 drapes in. They put marble throughout the home, white carpet in every single room. Darlie wore diamond rings on most of all of her fingers, not just her wedding ring. She had diamonds on most of her fingers. Well, I can tell you with our dogs, white carpet would not be the good life. No, it would not. She invested in implants because she said Darren liked her that way. That's part of the good life. Uh, they owned a 30-foot boat, 30-foot boat um, that they kept on Lake Ray Hubbard, which is not far from Rowlett. And he drove a Jaguar. Good life. Yeah, that's all the signs of good life. Of of disposable income. You can afford these things, right? Because mm-hmm. all these things come with payments and payments and payments. Well, so Disposable income is typically when you pay it off in cash. <laughs> well, disposable income is, yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, the, well, but they might have been then because they were making money. But uh, they, they, no, they said. Just, as they start having um, financial problems, that's probably a lot of it. They had all these things. They Right, financed. which we will talk about. They had all the, most of these things financed. And, okay, so Skip Hollinsworth wrote a piece on the routiers. Chris, he actually interviewed both of them after the conviction. Um, It's a very good piece. I highly recommend you go read it. Skip Hollinsworth, the Texas Monthly. And he found out a a few things after interviewing them. So in 1995, Darren's company brought in about a half million dollars in gross revenues, and he paid himself an annual salary of $125,000. I know I saw the look on your face. So, yeah, so he's to, paying himself that most percentage of the money. did not add up with me either. Okay, okay so no wonder the yeah financial right? problems started occurring. Mm-hmm. Maybe the company started doing poorly. See, so their neighbors. If I was the electronic testing component <laughs> business. Yeah, myself twenty five thousand and uh, yeah, make some money. So, so he's making, but he has to support the lifestyle, right? It's his company, his business. He's supporting the lifestyle. So their neighbors, Skip Hollinsworth, spoke to some of their neighbors, and this is really. They actually called them the Rowlett version of the Clampets from the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, they had a concrete, concrete they, pond. They were they they were a hoot. Their their friends and neighbors said they were just you know he had the gold ring, she had the gold ring, she had the platinum blonde hair. They said she had a dog with the hair same color as hers that she purposely bought to match her hair. Mm. I mean, they were just blinging it out and. In this just suburban, normal neighborhood. And so, you know, people liked them. They didn't really have, 
anything really bad to say about them. So they made money and they spent money. Um, but something happens in 1996, and this is the year the murders occur. And that is, Chris, the money starts to run out. The business is not doing well. The routiers start to accumulate debt and they can't keep up with the expenses. Um, I read a few things. I read that they were behind two or three months on their mortgage. I did read that he was about $22,000 in debt with his business. Um, they owed the IRS thousands and thousands of dollars. So there were some issues here. Okay. The good life didn't last very long. No, it did not. Um, and this is when some of the fighting started to begin. And according to Darley's diary, so Darley's diary was found um, after the murders when clearly they're looking through the house and and she's arrested. And by the way, this is not some like secret. She's sitting on death row in Texas. So we'll talk about her arrest and trial in part two because there's just so much we're going to talk about with the crime scene tonight. Um, but I am going to just read a few things in Darley's diary because this will come into play. The reason, um, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, but but these are important. September 7th, 1995, Darley says this. Devin and Damon are growing so fast, and I see myself getting older each day. I am now seven months pregnant, and we're bringing Drake Routier into the world. I have had two dreams about death in the past several months. Both times I was hesitant to go, but when I did it, it was such a wonderful feeling, one that you cannot describe, and both times I felt I was going to be with the Lord. Okay, that's fine. People have visions of death and dream about it and experience things like that. Okay. And in fact, I I am going to say this in just a little bit, but these are diary entries. What do we do with diary entries? We never think anybody's really going to read them, right? These are private things we put on paper, right? I mean, that's the way I look at a journal and writing your feelings down. I mean, you always worry about people getting access to their things. but keep it locked up in your brain. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, we know that's where yours is, honey. <laughs> October 1st, Chris, 1995. I really love Darren with all my heart, but sometimes I feel like I'm missing something. I'm sure I have everything every woman could ever wish for. Maybe it's the excitement. Things I used to do when I was younger. The thrill of not knowing. Just doing whatever came up. I know I have a lot of responsibilities, but a little craziness once in a while sure wouldn't hurt. I want to grow old with Darren, but I don't want to feel as though part of me has to die to do it. I am young and I want to feel it. One of the entries made just a month before the murders was a suicide note to her boys. This is May 3rd, 1996. I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time. I just cannot find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in this world. I don't want you to see a miserable person every time you look at me. Your dad loves you all very much, and I know in my heart he will take care of my babies. Please do not hate me or think in any way that this is your fault. Now, I do want to make a few points here. First of all, like I mentioned, this is a personal personal diary entry that she may or may not have wanted anyone to ever find. And I am sure she isn't the only woman to ever feel down in the dumps or venting on paper. She had a baby seven months ago. And there are, we're going to talk about this a little bit. There were anxiety and depression that friends and family say she was exhibiting um, a little bit. But the reason I bring this up is because when it comes to talk about the trial, the journal entries and her state of mind is what the prosecution says is the motive. People have, Chris, have been under the impression for a long time that she killed her kids for the life insurance money. But the prosecution didn't put that in the forefront in this trial. Prosecution believed it was the life stressors that made her take the lives of her two boys. What do you think about that suicide note? That's the way I would lean. 
the life stressors, not the life insurance. Right. They did have life insurance. But still, I mean. And and the part of the debt, right, when they find out about the debt. And most life insurance policies for children are not quite. No, they're not. We, I mean, we know. No, and if you pay off your own debt, it's not like you're left with a lot anyway. That's what I mean. I think it was the life stressors. You know. And maybe she was trying to off herself too and chickened out. We'll talk about that later. We will. And now it's time for a wine recess. Chris, I want to tell our listeners about my friend Tammy and her podcast, Grits with a Side of Murder. Grits with a Side of Murder is a true crime podcast hosted by Tammy and her variety of co-hosts. Grits features a different guest each week, and they have no idea what criminal truth Tammy will reveal. Tammy and her co-host sip on adult beverages while she tells a true crime story. Grits with the Side of Murder consists of light banter about criminals that, well, aren't the brightest candle on the cake, while still making a conscious effort to be respectful of victims and their families. When you tune in, you might hear Tommy, who is a retired Atlanta homicide detective, or maybe you'll hear Jordan, Colin, or Michelle. You never know who or what you're going to get. You can hear new episodes each and every week. You will be sucked in by the cool intro music and her sweet southern voice. Please check out our friends at Grits with the Side of Murder wherever you listen to your podcast. Contains adult content and explicit material. Okay, babe, we are drinking Copperhead Red, which is modeled after, like you said, a Super Tuscan. Um, this red blend is our is um, Cascabel Ranch Winery Super Texan. It's com- compromise of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Sangiovese, and Primitivo. It has hints of blackberry, cherry, and chocolate and pairs well with anything from pizza to steak. This is the perfect wine for those who like a smooth and easy red with enough dryness to keep things interesting. And interesting it was. Ugh. Yeah, very good. Nice. Um, so Nice good. dry finish. and. Um, Tell them what you little... paired with this amazing wine because your dish was so good. So it was super Texan. Uh, based on a super Tuscan, so I went with a Tuscan-type food pairing. And so just kind of looking what to make. Um, I just took a big gulp of wine, and I know somebody's going to say that because yeah, people okay. hate that. That's what the show It was about, just right? too good. I'm sorry. I had to gulp it. I'm sure somebody's gulping as they're listening to this right now, <laughs> so who cares? Keep going, babe. Sorry. Anyways, um, so I made a Bisteca a la Florentina, which is um, – well, it's typically a T-bone cut um, in that region. It's from a certain type of cow. Um, I had a little issue finding a T-bone steak today, which is kind of strange. I went to two different um, two different stores, so I don't know. I could find everything but a T-bone. Very bizarre. Nonetheless, I used one side of a T-bone, which is a nice big old fat sirloin strip, and on the, topped it with a um, kind of a mushroomy uh, sun-dried tomato cream sauce on a bed of arugula. And a couple of little girl lemons. And then we had a side dish of some white cannelloni beans with some rosemary and garlic, mm-hmm. which I don't think you liked. But we it's sure okay. did. It was good. I was so full. I, I just had to make steak. something different. As I, I mean, you can only eat potatoes and polenta and couscous and all that yeah. crap so many times. And then just a simple little salad with some leftover wriggling baby spinach and a little vinaigrette and some pecorino cheese. And some mozzarella balls. Yes, well, I didn't make those. Those were already <laughs> marinated. So those they are, are cheap. Those are cheap. So it was good. I think it was, it was good. so good and it went with the wine so well. And we are going to be getting three new recipes, right? Next week? Three. Yep. Some more. Three or more. Yep. Next week, guys. So if you're on our Patreon, be looking for those um recipes, babe. It was delicious. Thank you. Um Every time you cook, it's delicious. But this steak with the sauce, the sauce. I mean, I felt like I was eating a steak at like my favorite restaurants, like Morton's and Capital Grill. That's what I felt like. You're welcome. It was that good, babe. Pan seared. Since we still don't have a grill, since we moved back in, so (laughs) I guess we need to get one of those. Yeah, one of these days, right? What Texan, self-respecting Texan, goes on living without a grill or a smoker of some sort? We need to fix that, honey. And a fridge full of We've Dr. Been back Pepper. Home. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to jump back into the case? Sure. 
All right. So let's talk about the details of the crime and the state of the home when the police arrived on the scene. And then we'll circle back and talk about this 911 call a little bit. We'll talk about the we're talking about some of the 911 call in part two. But I just kind of want to get to the um, to really like the the demeanor on the 911 call. Okay, so the police arrive at the home three minutes after Darlie makes that 911 call. Darren was downstairs performing CPR. Um, trying to save his sons. I was, you know, it's just it's, these cases are just so hard. So, um, it didn't da- sound like she was doing much on those. She's calls. On, no. Uh, Darren will later say in an official statement and at the trial, he even testified to this, Chris, that he saw Darlie go into the kitchen, grab towels, and was putting them on the boys. She also had a towel up to her neck to stop the bleeding. What police found was that Devin's body was covered in blood and it did not indicate a towel was used on him at all. They thought it would remove some of the blood that was found. They said he was covered in blood. They didn't see um, no towel was actually found on either child. There was no indication that a towel was actually used on either of them. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the first thing I want to talk about. There are, by the way, I had, I found a, um, and this is all on the internet. You can really find this stuff. I was, I told you, Chris, I was very surprised at how much of this information is public in this case. I know it's a, it's a case that's over and done. And so now things are on the internet. Now there won't be any pictures of that, nor do I want to see them of the boys. Um, but there are pictures of her clothes, the house, the outside of the house, the sock, everything we're going to talk about. So I will post those on our, on our social media site so people can take a look. Um, there is a bloody knife, which we know came from, we now know came from the Routier's knife block in the kitchen. Okay. So this knife was taken from their kitchen. Routier told the 911 operator that her home had been broken into and that an intruder had stabbed her children, six-year-old child, five-year-old child, and cut her throat. So this, this intruder didn't even bring his own weapon, apparently. So we'll talk about that in part two, which is kind of a reason why she has never been tried for the second child's murder. So we'll talk about that. Um. Okay, so... There's the the bloody knife. Um, We know it came from the kitchen. We know that the wounds are on all three of them downstairs. Darren and the child are upstairs. This is a two-story home. So police discovered a window screen in the garage had been cut, which indicated, right, a possible point of entry for a burglar or an intruder. A search of the house. So police arrive. They look everywhere, Chris. They don't see an intruder. They don't. They don't see anyone in the garage. They don't see anybody any, anywhere. So that's when they allow the paramedics to come in and tend to the victims, right? They want to make sure that there's still not an intruder in the house and then it, it's safe and clear. So Routier told the police that she had fallen asleep on the couch with her two boys while they were watching television, only to wake up later and discover an unknown man in her house. She stated that as she approached him, the man fled, dropping the knife in the utility room as he ran. She says she then picks up the knife while she's chasing him away. But then she says she realizes that she and her children had been cut and are are hurt. And that's when she screams for her husband and calls 911. So police find it highly suspicious that Routier and her sons had been so severely wounded by an armed intruder without waking her until after the attack occurred. Yeah, a little suspect. She said what woke her up was the child, one of the children grabbing onto her shoulder. Now, Chris, I will say this is number one for me, too, at what we have talked about so far. This story, if your children are being attacked, I feel like they're going to let out a noise. I mean, can you think of any reason why they wouldn't? Unless you're some trained assassin, you know. 
with a death blow at your first slice. I don't know. Being facetious, of course, but I, I just, I, I don't know how a mom. Okay, first of all, there's mom alert, right? There's mom brain. Okay, I've got mom brain. I know what mom brain is. You never sleep through the whole night. You hear a noise, you wake up. You have kids in another room. You're always, I, I sleep with the door open. I, I make her door be open. I want to hear sounds. Like that is what we listen for as moms. So this is number one for me. Um, if the, I, I just feel like the first stab, right? And then you have a second one. It, and then and then the child is stabbed with such force that the knife almost goes through the entire body. And then you have the other child that is stabbed in the back six times, which also makes me think, Chris, he was asleep on his stomach, okay? And the child must have been asleep on his back in the other. So I'm just trying to just kind of play this around in my head as I'm researching this. And as a mom, I'm sleeping right there. Um, okay, so, and you're laying on the couch and your throat is cut and you are stabbed twice in the arm. How does that not wake you? Exactly. How does none of this not wake you? Routier told police that the assailant escaped through the garage. Investigators said that the garage contained no blood drops and added that indications were that no one had actually run through there at all. They didn't see anything in the garage. The windowsills in the garage had untouched layers of dust, including the window that had been cut implying that they don't think anybody actually went through that window. They think the dust would have been disturbed if somebody would have crawled through the window. The mulch on the flower beds that was between the garage and the backyard gate, no, there were no footprints as if anybody had stepped in there. That's why more and more of this evidence points to there not being anybody else involved. They brought in, source, they brought in two specialists because of this, because of the way the house looked. And both of them said an intruder has not been here. That was their remarks. There has not been an intruder in this home. So let's talk about other reasons why they believe this. 75 yards away from the house, they find a bloody sock. Lab tests revealed, Chris, it had blood from both children, Damon and Devin, on it, but also included an immense amount of Darley's DNA, but none of Darley's blood. This sock belonged to Darren Routier. So the sock belongs to the husband. He would later tell police that they had a sock basket that sat in the, the laundry room, and he believed that's where the sock came from. And then a canine team and police searched the house. Investigators found no one in the garage. A trail of blood went from the den through the kitchen and into the garage. But then, Chris, it disappears in front of the garage window. Police saw that the window screen had been sliced open, but they found no blood on the windowsill or on the outside of the house. So the blood stops inside. Nothing, nothing going outside which is a little highly suspect. Well, and you wonder how the sock got that far away from the house without any sort of evidence of blood. Like, who put it there? She was bleeding. Nope. She could have been bleeding after. Oh. Yeah. She could have planted that before. She cut herself. That's what they believe. I mean, I'm not saying this because I'm just making this up. This is what the... the people... The, the doctors who, who cared for her and her injuries... Believe she self-inflicted them. I mean, they testified that they felt that these were self-inflicted wounds and that she would have planted the sock before coming back in and cutting her neck. Um, okay, so no blood was found past the utility room. Again, I'm going to post a picture of the house. Everybody kind of has an idea when, when I'm walking through this. So I, I am going to kind of talk about... Um, the blood evidence here. So in all, in all three of their the 
her blood and both of the mm-hmm. children's blood was all in the knife, right? Um, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the knife um in just a bit because the knife Everything has I to want do. To talk about we'll just talk about it later. So okay, <laughs> keep going. Go ahead. The sure. well, the bit, the thing about the knife is that starts on the nine one one call. She tells the she tells the nine one one operator. Yeah, I, I picked up the knife. I, I read my that, fingerprints. Yeah. Oh, my fingerprints are going to be on it. Okay. Uh, no blood was found on the window frame or screen. No blood on the fence or gate. No blood was found anywhere outside, like well, I mentioned. Why would her fingerprints not be on it? It's their knife. I mean. Right. But she says, oh, I picked it up. I screwed up. I shouldn't have picked it up. I screwed up. Oh, and it, but. But people have people have listened to this nine one one call, Chris, over and over. No, and specialists have like, said, you, "There's her, reasons without, you even, say things like this." If she did it, yes, I'm just yes. saying, like, ding dong, leave that part out. Of course, you're picking. It's your freaking knife, you know, right? Like already, it's not as though it's some right. Knife. Why give the information if you're not asked? This is why she starts. This is really what digs her hole. She starts to give all kinds of information without being asked by police. And the police will testify to this in the trial. Okay. So, um, like I said, we could talk about Darlie to your probably for months. We could make so many episodes. Um, So let's talk about some of the blood evidence. So the evidence comes that I'm going to talk about comes from police reports and reviewing of the crime scene photos, which I said are public. You can see them. I will also post these pictures um, of the outside of the home so you can see what police believe was a crime scene set up to make it look like an intruder came into the house. No blood was found on the couch or the pillows where Darlie said she was stabbed. Damon's bloody handprint was found on the carpet where he was first stabbed. So they said Damon's blood trail indicated that he had moved. So wherever he was first laying and stabbed, they believed he was on the opposite wall where he was found. So they do believe his body was moved. They believe he he may have stood up and then fallen down um, because of what they found on the couch, his DNA, blood DNA on the couch, um, and then fell Um, where he was found blood on the wall where Damon was found indicated he was stabbed again by someone bleeding. A DNA test showed Chris that this blood was Darlie's. Luminol proved blood was rinsed down the sink and wiped up from the counter and on the sides of the sink and also from the tap and the spout. Blood dripped on the inside of the cupboard door. This was also proved to be Darlie's. Blood drops on top of blood drops on the carpet or in, in front of the sink indicated. So you're standing at the sink, right? Let's say you're standing there washing your hands and you're bleeding from your elbow. Okay. I'm bleeding from my elbow or I'm bleeding from my neck, like in Darlie's situation or my arm. And I'm doing something in the sink. Well, blood is going to be dropping directly below me. And there's going to be blood dropping on top of blood. And so this is what they find. They find stationary blood with blood drops on top of that blood. But that that goes with someone standing there doing something, not rushing and running back and forth like she said she was doing in the kitchen. Um, the bloody towels that were found in the home were not on either child, um, as Darren and Darlie had claimed they were, but they believe, police believe that these towels that had the boys' blood all over them were actually tried, were actually used to try to clean up the scene. Routier's son sustained fatal injuries. Devin was announced dead on the scene, and Damon died in the ambulance en route to the hospital. Her wounds, described as superficial, came within two millimeters of her corroded artery. Routier was treated at a hospital and released two days later. I want to ask you something, Chris, as a medical professional. If someone is cutting their... Okay, so here's the deal of... Here's, here's what I'm not liking about her injuries and her, and, her, um, and her claim of what happened. When you're cutting a throat, typically you will see if someone is coming from behind you or from the side of you... They're, they're typically going to go higher up on under the chin, maybe not so far under the chin, 
but they're going to head going towards the neck area. This looked like something that wrapped around almost like. She was laying down supposedly though, right? Yes, but there was no blood found on the couch or on the pillow where she was lying. So that's her story. Right. So she's saying that, right, that she woke up and she was cut. How the approach angle would be. And mind you, my medical (laughs) expertise. (laughs) Ask me about your colon. I'm good. (laughs) Tell you all you want to know. No idea about somebody stabbing somebody or slicing somebody. I see what you're saying. Yes. If somebody was coming up behind you, if you were standing. Yes. But even in I front of you, that. is anybody is somebody going to walk pot, walk by you on a on a couch and slice from the front? It just seems a little odd. No, it just seems like they would just poke you with the with the pointy end. Why would you slice somebody's neck? Right. Why would you not just go for a stab? Why are you Kinda going? Why the story sounds like bullshit? Like why would you not? I'm just not. No, it doesn't make sense. No, I agree it, it doesn't. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Um, now I want to circle back to the 911 call. Now, listening to this call, I try to, and I do this with a lot of things that I research and talk about. I try to put myself in the situation and think about the words she's using as a mom. You just find your children dead. Okay. You're, you're, she sounds very panicked in this 911 call. Before I get into this, Chris, I, this was the first time you were listening to this, and I and I kind of did this on purpose. And your reaction, I was watching your face as you're looking at the words and 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 listening to this. What was your first impression of that nine one one call? Mm, that her cries and screams sound a little fake and overproduced, and more of a production than actual franticness. Okay. And um, um, I was wondering. The husband, why was she making the 911 call if she's cut and has a slice across her neck? Why the husband wasn't doing that or tending to something or why she wasn't? I don't, I don't know. Like I said, it just sounded kind of. Well, bizarre. he was performing she CPR. Did. He told her to call 911. So. It doesn't seem like she was that injured, I guess, is based, basically. I mean, I don't know. That's why I think it sounds like all of her wounds were superficial. Sounds kind of phony. Somebody cut your neck and you're two millimeters from the carotid artery. I mean, I don't know. Although that's not like it's that hard to be that far away. It's, no. it's a pretty superficial vein anyway. But but what I'm saying is, but a, but if you're not a medical professional, you don't know that, right? So you might just be thinking by doing that. You're not, she didn't well, cut as pre- high, right? The, they were the pretty cut- good at killing the kids. Why didn't they get her? You know, I mean, they did a pretty good job. So, you know, right. once again, they were very efficient uh, in killing the two kids. How did she skate out? Especially without any sort of defense or, you know, fighting anyone off or whatever. So that's why it sounds, I mean, just to me. But I think just her demeanor during the 911 call and just how the thing she was saying. And it just sounded very, uh, you know, all the oh my gods and yada, yada, yada. It was just a little, uh, I don't know. Now there is, um, now I have not listened to this, but I have. Ha- we have a few listeners who have reached out knowing we're covering this case and have said that they have listened to a roundtable discussion with professionals who dissected this 911 call. And based on what they had to say, they totally believe she is guilty. I have not listened to it yet, but I am going to be listening to this group of, of professionals and and what they think, but I'm going to... As a non-professional, I listen to it, and she sounds guilty, so... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So there are some key things here that a co- person with just some common just sense... Just the evidence alone, even. I wouldn't even have to hear that on one call. I mean, yeah, for just... Okay, so she says, they just stabbed me and my kids, my little boys. Again, I know kind of it's hard to hear a little bit about what she's saying, so the words, you can you can find them online. Um, she says, you know, the 911 operator says, who did this? You know, who did that? And she says, my little boy is dying. And again, Chris, like you said, with a not so 911 is basically trying to get someone there. And she's telling them to hurry. And they're going, ma'am, ma'am. They're calling each other ma'am back and forth for a little bit, which is weird. And then she's asking her her address. And she's not, like, confirming her address. And she says, I'm trying to get an ambulance. You know, just hold on a minute. And she's like... Like you said, they're dead. They're dead. Devin's already dead. Oh God, I didn't. I don't even know who did this. So that's that's the first. Okay, so again, mom brain. They're dead. Oh my God, 
Oh, Devin is already dead. Oh, God. I don't even know who did this. Um, s- s- silence and audible kind of stuff going on. And then you like hear the- how, Like, how did the husband even know to come downstairs? She screams. So she screams. She screams. And I do believe he said he heard- Was he ever a Glass suspect? break- Again, oh, hard. we'll talk about that later. <laughs> There's so much to this case. Yeah, we could well, make like we'll a whole month of episodes. Up, so we'll just discuss that another time. Okay, but okay, but um, of course he was. Of course they looked into him, but they didn't find anything except they did find something a few years back that yeah, um, I know. I know what they found. So that brought up some questions, and so you know, but he has. He, listen, he has stood by Darley since this. They did separate in 2011, but that's a long time after. I mean, that's, maybe, I mean, he stayed with her another, things, another 15, 16 years. Because he defended her for a long time, correct? He did. He spent almost all of his life savings to help her because he believed she did not commit this crime. Okay, so the 911 operator, again, is just asking the address and... Darley says, who did this? So we know she's talking to Darren. Okay. Who did this? I don't know who did this. Oh, my God. Who who would do this? She says that so many times in this call over and over again. I don't know who did this. Who did this? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The 911 operator at one point is telling her, you know, please calm down. We, you know, there's there's help coming. I need you to calm down and tell me, you know, you know, what what is going on here? And I want to go up to where um after she's telling her over and over and over to please calm down, she is really trying to um figure out What's going on? And she says, my babies are dead. Jesus, hang on, honey. We're calling, honey. Hold on. They're coming, honey. Um, And she says, I can't understand what you're saying. So somebody came in. So this is what she tells the 911 operator. Somebody came in while I was sleeping. Me and my little boys were sleeping downstairs. Some man came in and stabbed my babies, stabbed me. I woke up. I was fighting. Now, this is important because the fighting aspect, fighting an intruder off, there were no signs of any sort of defensive wounds that they felt she had on her. Um, So she's fighting an intruder. He ran out through the garage, threw the knife down. My babies are dying. They're dead. Oh, my God. So she's telling the 911 operator this. And then she goes on and then she starts screaming. You can't really understand what she's saying after that. And then the 911 operator is just telling her, please stay on the phone. Please stay on the phone. Um, I'm really, you know, just trying to get somebody to you. And then she starts talking to her husband. So she starts saying things like, Darren, who would do this? Um, She said, my husband just ran downstairs. He's helping me, but they're dead. Oh, my God, they're dead. And she tells him there's two of them. There's two of them. You know, who would do this? Darren, um, who would do this? We have to find out who did this. Um, she, the 911 operator's trying to get her to give information. How old are your kids? Um, where are you located in the home? And she keeps saying, Darren, they're dead. Oh, my God, they're dead. Who would have done this? And the 911 operator finally says, is your husband, is his name Darren? Like, who do you keep talking to? Um, And then she said, there's, she said, someone killed our babies. They're over there. They ran out in the garage. I was sleeping. My babies. Oh, God. There's just a lot more of, of the oh, gods. Go look out in the garage. Look out in the garage. There was a knife laying there. Oh, God, I touched the knife. I touched the knife. I shouldn't have touched the knife. I touched the knife, so my prints are going to be on. Like, there's just so much information she's giving. I I just, <laughs> if, they don't, if they don't get here, they're going to be dead. And we know one of the boys was already dead before police even arrived. Um, 
Okay. So let's just kind of talk about the demeanor on this call a little bit. Um, I, I think the biggest thing for me was, I don't know if I would be so concerned about, I mean, yeah, you want to know who did this if it wasn't you, but you're giving information about touching the knife and that your fingerprints are already going to be on it. Your fingerprints are going to be on it because you touched it and you shouldn't have touched it, but you're going to tell the 911 operator to let them know that you accidentally touched it. It's a little odd. It's not the first thing I would be thinking about if my babies were dying on the floor. That's called CYA. What's CYA? Cover your ass. Yeah. And then we have the, then when she's talking to Darren and she's telling Darren, who did this? Who would do this, Darren? We have to find out who did this. Do you know that when she was put onto the, the, the gurney and brought into the ambulance, she was telling, she was screaming at her husband, Darren, we have to find out who did this. I don't know. I don't know who did this. And she says this once or twice on the 911 call too. I don't know who did this. Is that, is, is, I mean, to me, that's like a lot of deflection, right? I don't know who did this. I don't know who did this. If I just keep saying this, then they won't think it's me. They won't think I had anything to do with this. That's what I think. I mean, we again, we don't know what anybody or how we would react, react if something like this was to happen to us, right? We don't know what we would say. We don't know... But I know I would be concerned about, and and again, how were you, even the heaviest sleeper, there, were, there, there was no, there was no, there was no information about her being an alcoholic or, or anything that would have somehow passed her out, right? To where she's just not. She could have been used one of those pillows from the MyPillow guy. Oh. That guy. <laughs> oh, she's just such a bit. restless sleeper. She doesn't hear her two sons. And again, why hear no screams? You don't hear a peep? I mean, how do you not hear a peep? And if you're an assassin, you're not leaving one alive. If you're there to do a job, you're not leaving one alive. I think we can establish it wasn't a Rowlett assassin. No, but we will talk about a few things that the neighbor saw, a few things that were found out about Darren Routier in a conversation he had with Dar- with Darley's stepfather, and which he denied at first, but then... Uh, well, next episode, we'll, and we'll talk about the things that I want to talk about, too. I know. We'll get, all right. we'll get to the You'll be all talkative the next episode. You'll be, you'll be saying all kinds of things about... All those questions you had. But yes, because that all comes up in the trial. It comes up in the trial and it comes up after the trial. So after after all of this, right, she's not arrested immediately. Newscasters, okay, so the boys are then buried. And Devin's seventh birthday um, was eight days after the murder. She's shown smiling and laughing. As I mean, everyone has seen this video. She's spraying silly string and dancing on top of her son's graves. Um, family members point out, though, that they had a very solemn private family service before the silly string incident. And... Four days after this video, Routier's arrested and charged with capital murder. Routier later commented on the video saying he wanted to be seven. I did the only thing I knew to do to honor him and give him all his wishes because he wasn't here anymore. But how do you know what you're going to do when you lose two children? How do you know how how do you know how you're going to act? Well, she probably would have been convicted or at least arrested regardless of the video. But, yeah, it didn't look good. And, yeah, it's not like the news is not notorious for uh, portraying somebody in a certain light. So. Sure. And I will say that the funeral director who met with the routiers and who who helped, you know, 
bury their children said that he saw a grieving mother and he saw her grieve privately and he and he testified and said in a sworn statement that her actions he's seen lots of mothers grieve over over dead children and he said her reaction was really nothing any different than some people celebrate death right they celebrate it because they celebrate their life they're not celebrating their death they celebrate their life and he says that it's not an uncommon thing to do is it an uncommon thing to do a few days would i have done that no but that's not but but i wouldn't do that but i don't know would someone else you know i i don't know all right, Chris, that concludes part one of the Darley Routier case. Part two to follow where we will discuss the trial, the conviction, why she wasn't tried for one of the boys' murders, and where and what Darley is saying today. And my questions. And all your questions. <laughs> okay, babe. Let's talk about this wine. It was so good. So good. The food was good. The wine was good. Yes, and the owner of this uh, little winery is just such an awesome guy. So even more of a reason to uh, go enjoy some of those delicious varieties. He is an awesome dude. And um, he reached out and said, I got to send it to you. And I said, we got to drink it. And that's what we did. Well, we had it before. Yes, we we did. We didn't ever have any sort of food pairing. That's right. Yeah, we the, had it when we did an, We did the episode with the, him. We had the sneak peek without any label, the, um, <laughs> That's right. the mystery bottle. Well, I felt very special by that. I know, and it now cool. it's out, and we have it, and we're we having were like it. We some of the first people to have it ever. We before. were. And the Texas Wine and True Crime wine glasses are now out, so we are sipping first time out of those. We're saving it for this occasion. And his yeah, awesome shameless wine. plug. <laughs> All right, well, I'm corking this one five. We swore, I thought we were, weren't corking anymore. I don't know. Anymore. I kind of want to go back to the corks. It's like one episode. I miss episode. it. It was only one episode. I miss it already. Five corks for my friends at Cascabel Ranch Winery. Um, so please go visit. Um, you, they are north of Dallas. Cascabel Ranch Winery. Google it. You can find them on Instagram. Um, great people. Great wine. I can't wait to have, we're going to do another episode with him too. He's a police officer. He knows his stuff. He knows his wine. He knows his, his true crime. Good friend of ours. Thank you guys so much for this wine. It was delicious. Chris, thank you for the food, babe. Certainly. So yummy. All right, hon. As always, we want to share an organization that just encourages us to be better people and to always remember that giving is much better than receiving. So, Chris, tonight I want to once again share the Peyton Heart Project with everyone. Uh, the Peyton Heart Project is a global initiative to help end suicide and bullying and the stigma surrounding mental health issues. It is named after 13-year-old Peyton James from Georgetown, Texas. Peyton took his life in 2014 after years of bullying we distribute, um, they distribute handmade hearts all over the world with inspirational quotes designed to raise awareness and remind people that their life matters. We have the, we have these beautiful hearts we've shared, Chris, all over Texas where we've traveled. We took them down to Brownwood and shared them there. So friends, you can find um, more information at the PeytonHeartProject.org or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Chris, we both hate bullying. We do. I have shared with you and others many times that schools, that I feel schools should implement curriculum about how to treat people with respect and the terrible consequences bullying can have on young people, not just the people that are being bullied, but the bullies themselves, because I think there is a lot of um, lack of respect for oneself when you have to bully. So I think... Both sides need the help, and I think the younger they understand it, um, the better off everyone can be. Um, So, again, check out the PeytonHeartProject.org. Peyton's dad is a retired teacher who is dedicating his life to spreading awareness about bullying. God bless him, Chris, and Peyton, and all of the children and parents that are currently dealing with this type of pain because the words and actions of others matters. 
Until next time, friends, stay safe, have fun, and cheers to next time. Cheers, everyone.